Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is your host, Dan Nexon. This episode features the always interesting and engaging Ken McLeod. His comments will focus on The Night Sessions, which was released this year in the United States. The Night Sessions combines elements of the mystery, thriller, and science fiction genres. It is set in a near-future Edinburgh, where artificial intelligence is a reality, Two great elevators have opened up space to human and robot habitation, and a wave of secularism has marginalized religious practice and observance. Ken McLeod was born in Stornoway, Isle of Lewis, Scotland, on August 2, 1954. He is married with two grown-up children and lives in West Lothian. He has an honors and master's degree in biological subjects and worked for some years in the information technology industry. Since 1997, he has been a full-time writer, and in 2009 was writer-in-residence at the ESRC Genomics Policy and Research Forum at Edinburgh University. He is the author of 13 novels, From the Star Fraction, published in 1995, to Intrusion, published in 2012, and many articles and short stories. His novels and stories have received three BSFA awards and three Prometheus awards, and several have been shortlisted for the Clark and Hugo Awards. So one of the things that we were talking about a minute ago, and I know that we'd emailed about, is that um, from the perspective of somebody reading the United States, The Night Sessions is a new book, uh, but in fact uh, it came out a few years ago in the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yeah. And the only reason it didn't come out in the United States was that my then U.S. publisher, although they generally liked my work, had found that my previous couple of books hadn't sold as well as they'd hoped. <clears throat> and um, they decided not to not to bring that one out. And I'm very grateful to Pyre to, for taking a, a risk on it. And on my um, my other book, which came out actually l- later than the night sessions, the Restoration Game, which was also published by Pyre a couple of years ago. Well, they're both terrific books, and I'm glad that um, they are now available in the United States, so that those of us who who try to pick up this kind of work don't have to go to to London uh, or to. Uh, another major European city to, uh, to purchase it. Um, maybe you could uh, tell us a bit about uh, the night sessions, you know, its you know, basic plot and the ideas behind it. Well, it came out of thinking about secularism and the... It, it sort of took shape in my mind during the time when the so-called new atheism was becoming a hot topic. Now, I expect you're going to ask me something about the genesis of it later on, so I won't go into that here. But very briefly, what it's about is it's set in a world where in most of the advanced countries, at least, there has been what is 
described by the people who like it as a second enlightenment and the people who don't like it as the great rejection. And it's a kind of second stage of the separation of church and state, which is, as we know, enshrined in many constitutions. In, but it's taken to the level of the separation of politics from religion, so that it, it's become at least a liability for any politician to be seen as associated with a, a church or religious movement or to admit to having religious motivations. And laws inspired by religion have been rolled back. I mean, I would imagine things like Sunday trading laws and various kinds of blue laws of one kind or another. And the the background to this rather radical change is that the, the wars that we're in at the moment, that we've been in in the tw 21st century so far, have ended in a kind of... Uh, Peric victory, if you like, for the United States and its allies, including the United Kingdom. And the soldiers coming back from the wars and the populations generally afterwards began to take a very dim view of the of what you might call faith-based politics. So you got this rollback of religion. And the the, the story is set a couple of decades, roughly, after all this has happened. And it, it deals with a policeman in Edinburgh trying to understand what appears to be religiously motivated terrorism, uh, namely a couple of assassinations. And he finds, that, he finds that whoever is behind it is making references to Scotland's great tradition of uh, Presbyterian violent rebels who are called the Covenanters and um, then investigates further and of course it being a crime novel, police procedural call it what you will it becomes uh, an even more elaborate and complex situation than you at first suspect Alright, well as you alluded to before, my next question uh, concerns uh, where uh, this, these ideas came from. I mean, what made you want to write a book uh, set in this kind, of, um, this kind of environment? Well, I was thinking at the time when I wrote it about the issues raised by the new atheism, by the so-called four horsemen, and of, the, of, a, of, a, of militant atheism, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris. Yeah, and the way in which a lot of geopolitical issues and issues of international relations, of imperialism and of uh, nationalism and so on, get understood and refracted in religious terms. And that was kind of one of the things that was I was sort of mulling over as a, a possible theme for my next book. And I by chance happened to see a, a video, I think it was by the rock band U2, but in any case it showed three rock rockers standing inside an, aer an airport perimeter fence and they were wearing big hats and long coats. And I had a kind of 
association cascade of airports and terrorism and the fact that they looked briefly a little bit like uh, elders of the Free Presbyterian Kirchgur or the Free Church or some such who, you know, classically wear long black coats and Homburg hats. And uh, then I, I started thinking about the possibility of Presbyterian terrorists, and I found it made a surprising amount of sense. And then I had to think, well, in what sort of what sort of society would you have to have to have such a thing as Presbyterian terrorists? And that's how I got the idea of the radically secularized polity. Well, it's interesting um, because from an historical perspective, the idea of having uh, revolutionary cells located within uh, Reformed or Calvinist churches is not at all um, shocking. I mean, I think uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how in the 1500s, the Reformed Church, uh, in particular its synodic and cell structure, enabled revolutionary movements that really created upheaval uh, in France during its wars of religion and in the Low Countries during uh, its struggles that, you know, eventually we now know as the the Dutch Revolt. Uh, And I'm wondering whether or not, um, well, I I find the the future social technical environment fascinating, and I, I hope we get a chance to talk more about that, whether you really need to imagine secularism to get to um, uh, reformed or evangelical or some other uh, form of, uh, of radical Christianist terrorism, because obviously in the United States we have experience with um, various Christian movements committing terrorist acts, uh, particularly in the context of abortion. It's hard to say. I mean, I can't think of an, uh, any other issue that would really push people that quite that far. And I wouldn't really like to speculate. We don't have, in the, at least in the UK, we don't have um, anti-abortion violence, thank goodness. And I think it's, it's partly to do with the fact that, in fact, of course, Europe, most European, most Western European countries including Great Britain, are vastly more secular than the U.S. is, despite or perhaps because of the fact that so many of them have established churches. But the the level of sheer religious indifference in, in Britain and France and Germany and so forth, let alone Scandinavia, is, you know, enormous by American standards. So... I don't think there's anything on the immediate horizon that would, in, in in a kind of realistic projection of the future, result in at least any any kind of at least nominally Christian influenced terrorism. Yeah, I mean, I, this is one of the things that I was thinking about as as I was reading the book, um, because the idea of secularization has a very different resonance, I think. Uh, in the Western European context, as in, as it does in the American context, uh, and you know, for for example, um, one of the leading scholars of secularism, Jose Casanova, argues that uh, in Europe, uh, rapid secularization occurred in the 60s because secularization got caught up with the idea of modernity, so that to be modern was to be secular be secular was to be modern in a way it didn't in the United States. And you certainly see that in the attitudes of the characters of the book. 
But despite having said that, I think that this is a wonderfully uh, sympathetic treatment uh, of characters who are both secular and and religious uh, and very sensitive and nuanced. And, uh, you know, you have characters who run the gamut uh, from, you know, hardcore uh, uh, atheists to uh, secularists but religious uh, to uh, anti-secularists to something far beyond that. Um, and I was wondering, uh, you know, whether you found it, how you found it so, uh, whether it was difficult or whether you found it, um, how you were able to, to portray all these different perspectives in such a, a kind of sympathetic and engaging light. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I suppose the easy answer is that I find it not too difficult because I've been, mm-hmm. been both kinds of person, you know. I'm uh, uh, in... You know, in terms of philosophy, I'm a hardcore atheist. In terms of my background, I grew up in a fundamentalist church, which isn't quite good, hasn't quite the same resonance, I guess, as it does in the U.S. In that it was, it's it's fundamentalist in a conservative sort of way rather than an innovative way. If you know what I mean. Um, it didn't need a fundamentalist revival because it had never moved from the. <laughs> from the original, so to speak, um, and they were, you know, it's a it's a church that still exists, the Free Presbyterian Church, for which I have a kind of, I suppose, a kind of grudging respect in a way for their their sheer um, refusal to compromise, and you know, any any question about you know. Um, Anything confrontational from them, nothing could be more anathema from from their point of view than that. And I, I have to say that you know, there's no absolutely no question of violent violence or anything like that in their background. But the the strange, the strangely elaborate uh, mental maneuvers that people have to go through to sustain, for example, uh, creationism, is you know something. That, quite familiar to me both from the inside in my youth, I suppose, and later on from the outside in taking part in or watching, reading online arguments that used to rage on uh, what we had children before there were blogs and Twitter and all that, which was, a, which was Usenet, which was news groups, and in news groups people used to have endless endless arguments and one of the news groups was called talk.origins and in that you got basically scientists and science students on the one side and science lovers I guess and um, creationists and fundamentalists of one kind or another going at it hammer and tongs and uh, I have a, a warm a warm appreciation of both sides of that argument you might say <laughs> The the moderate religious people and the sensible people, I don't really understand from the inside, but I, I, I understand from, from the outside, from my sensible friends and acquaintances. I know plenty of people who are of one faith or another, but who are liberal and open-minded. And I, I guess some of these characters were inspired by, though not, of course, based on them. I don't want to take us too far afield, but it's interesting that you mention talk.origins. 
one of the things that uh, and, and, and to, I, I knew that you had been a veteran of, of Usenet because of your association, I guess, with Rec Arts Science Fiction. Is that correct? Did I get the name? That's of correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing that it seems like in the current uh, intellectual or the current online environment. Uh, is that if you go back to the Usenet days, it seemed like everybody was arguing and engaged with everybody else, right? So you had the great libertarian wars raging on some of the politics groups. You had places like Talk uh, Origins where uh, creationists, uh, scientific creationists, um, evolu- you know, people who are, I, I guess, pro-evolutionist, uh, you know, um, people who are up to date with the, with the most recent science and enthusiasts really kind of came together and argued about things. And that seems to be less the case now or not so much the case in its successors, the blog sphere, et cetera. Um, and, and to some degree, you know, I hadn't thought about that way. That's, that's kind of reflected in the future environment you project, right, which seems to continue with this kind of with the with the use of internet technologies towards tailored news and, and a kind of narrow casting and ability for people to exist both people and artificial intelligence to exist with their, their own sort of bubbles of discourse was that a, a kind of deliberate notion i'm not entirely sure i i i've been intrigued for quite a while with the idea of um of narrow casting and what used to be called me papers. I mean, one 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 of my science fiction novellas, which you know from years and years ago, called Cydonia. I naively imagined that people would would sort of print out their own daily newspaper and read it over breakfast, whereas in fact, as we now know, people read it on their phone or or, or on their computer screen. And yeah, I find that that whole process of um, being able to subsist entirely in one's own intellectual comfort zone, which the blogosphere offers, and which, you know, I guess the fact that Google, for example, perhaps points up ads and possibly even news stories that are of interest to yourself as as seen from your search patterns and so forth. Um, I think that there are there may be some dangers in that, but I, I, if, if, it, if it's reflected in that particular novel, I think it was probably just uh, uh, the inertia of what's, what's going on rather than a, a conscious decision to bring that into it. Can we uh, talk a little bit more about the future environment of the night sessions? Um, this is, a, as you've alluded to, this is a fairly you know, elaborate uh, setup. Um, you have as you mentioned, the idea that September 11th um, inaugurated a period of time that retrospectively is known as the Faith Wars and culminate in a, a, a great apocalyptic battle in the Middle East complete with tactical nuclear weapons and uh, mechanized artificial intelligence weaponry uh, that, of course, turns out not to be the, the start of the Second Coming and therefore is part of the reason why people kind of go back and say, what were we doing here? Uh, the Great Rejection or the Second Enlightenment. But this is also a novel with with two space elevators, an Atlantic space elevator and a Pacific space elevator, where humans are in small populations on space and the moon. Uh, And and most notably where climate change has been uh, offset by radical forms of harm mitigation, in particular the creation of a 
great solar shield that that reduces the amount of sunlight coming to the earth and therefore offsets offsets warming uh, and you alluded to earlier the notion that this this scenario is largely was largely constructed to enable the kind of thought experiment of you know radical presbyterian terrorism uh, and so on and so forth but to what degree do you see this kind of future as an exercise in plausibility the idea well let's walk it through i think it's quite possible that the the us and uk axis in particular are heading for a fall one way or another i mean both your country and mine if you're listening in the united states are quite strongly dependent on things like cheap oil on there's this immense financialization of the economy which has caused us so much grief recently and there's the massive military uh, levels of military spending and military intervention and i think it's quite possible that you know sooner or later other powers who have not necessarily devoted as much time and energy and resources to that sort of thing but instead to you know making stuff will beat the US and the UK economically if not militarily possibly and sort sort of throw us back on a world where we have to make our own living again rather than leeching off the rest of the planet and personally I'd be heartily in favor of that both for well in particular for for the UK which is a disgusting parasitic state and a, an international pirate and you know i i absolutely despise what my own country the, U, the UK has become and so i'd be i'd be very happy and hopeful if if that happened in a, at least in a way that didn't involve large scale loss of life shall we say now if we had that if we had a, a pullback of, from all this military nonsense and oil chasing and so on and so forth and actually turned our attention to doing things that could mitigate or avert the climate crisis then we could by pouring money and brains and so on into projects like space elevators and solar shields and that sort of thing and solar shields aren't are no big are <laughs> uh, as i think the americans used to say no biggie it's not technically difficult it's not even doesn't even require enormous amount of material resources you just produce lots and lots of mylar the stuff that's used to make hot air balloons and spread it out in the sky um obviously there are lots of engineering details but i'm a science fiction writer so i don't have to bother with that it's it's a it's a it's a, a sort of possible future and rather a hopeful one even leaving aside all the all the religious or anti-religious stuff leave that to one side technologically that is a a, a possible path of development i think technologically and uh, geopolitically if you like I think we're going to have to move into making better use of resources and using 
more advanced manufacturing techniques and so on. And with these, and with some good research, it might well be possible to build space elevators and all that kind of exciting stuff. Now, whether, whether Soletas, as I call them in the book, would actually do more than mitigate global warming is another question entirely. It's politically, I think, geoengineering like that would be quite difficult to to put through. And it would have its own risks. And it doesn't actually address some other problems with increasing the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, notably the changing pH of the oceans, ocean acidification, as it's called, <coughs> which... Um, <coughs> is quite a worry in its own right. So it's interesting that you uh, you mentioned that, um, I w- because there's been a lot of discussion lately about, uh, at least in the popular press, people who don't, you know, who don't really live and breathe the science fiction genre, but who are interested in it and part of, I guess we're now talking about the rise of geek culture, so everybody's interested in science fiction or fantasy, even if they don't know it, is the idea. But there's been a lot of talk about... Uh, the rise of kind of dystopian uh, and dystopian science fiction scenarios, uh, in particular, uh, the idea that even our fantasy, right, is becoming a you know a real downer. If you think about you know the the current uh, enthusiasm for for the Game of Thrones series, uh, and you have these projects to try to you know revive science fiction as a arena for optimism and getting people interested in in trying to transform things for a better. And in that context, The Night Sessions is a very interesting book because on the one hand, as you say, it has sort of optimistic things going on. Um, You know, in many respects, the world is better than it was uh, during, uh, putting aside, as you say, the question of of religion than it was during, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, there has been some harm mitigation, you know, the horizons of humanity are expanding. Uh, Technology seems to be quite green. There's a lot of capacity uh, for sort of self-realization, particularly through technology. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's this deeply pessimistic undercurrent, um, which is realized in some respects at the end of the book, right, about not, about the sort of that humanity cannot escape the consequences of all of the horrors it's wrought on the ecosystem and on itself. And, and you have a, did you mean for there to be a particular take on this coming out of the book? No, not, not really in that respect. I mean, the... the the way in, it's not seen in the I don't think it's seen in the book as nature's revenge or anything like that. It's simply the the result of human actions of which uh, it's probably you can find one can find out what the actions are by reading the book. But in in principle, although the immediate situation is is a bit dark as as the book ends, at least on in the broad sense. It's. I don't think it, it ends in a. I don't think it ends in a downer, uh, either personally for the characters or um, even for for humanity as a whole. One can imagine humanity getting out of that particular situation rather more quickly than the individual or the group that plunged them into that situation had expected. You know, we only get his take on it in the book, but we don't know what 
perhaps better informed people might have to say about it. On the general question about the about the turn to pessimism and so on in, in SF and, and darkening future, I've been thinking about this a bit in the past few days, uh, partly because Joe Walton is a very engaging science fiction and fantasy writer and uh, online critic. She's been writing SF criticism and fantasy criticism online for a very long time, in fact, since the Usenet days. And she has a pretty regular um, column, if you like, or blog post at tor.com, where she talks about, well, whatever takes her fancy, really. And one of the things, she she recently had a piece up called something like How We Lost the Future, which was reflecting some discussion at a recent SF convention, and whether science fiction has... Science fiction has certainly lost what was a certain default future when I was when I was growing up and when I was a kid discovering science fiction. And that default future in the uh, the 60s when I started reading it, or the early 70s, obviously included a lot of stuff that came from the 50s, old golden age stuff and so on. And you know the, the general picture that the, the space program would result in the solar system being colonized in one way or another, and then humanity would move out to the stars, hopefully faster than light, but if necessary, <laughs> slower than light, we'd, we'd get there somehow. But that the fairly foreseeable 21st century would be a massive expansion of what we thought we were living in at the time. This space age, and we'd have moon bases and Mars colonies and so on, Certainly by by now. In fact, the most graphic way of showing what people in the 60s imagined our time would be like is just to look at Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because the visions that Clarke had and that Kubrick um, realised for 2001 certainly didn't seem at all unrealistic out of the picture in 1969 when it came out or whatever, you know, whatever year it was. So, in that sense, we have lost the future. It's not, we have lost that future, that science fictional future. The question is, well, one question is, well, was it ever very likely or even worth having in the first place? What we have instead is uh, a far more intimate relationship with space than we ever imagined. We have wonderful robots, and fingers crossed for for brave little curiosity or whatever it is when it crashes on Mars. <laughs> In the future, from my perspective, and presumably in the past from, from yours, when it, I, fingers crossed that it doesn't crash on Mars but lands smoothly and starts exploding. We have probes out to the gas giants. We have pictures from space like we simply couldn't have conceived of. And we can do amazing things like we can follow astronauts on Twitter. <laughs> I'm gobsmacked at stuff like that. And we have re more or less real-time weather forecasting from space and ama an amazing system of communications, which is heavily dependent on, on communication satellites and all that. 
I think that in some ways the, this future is a bit better than certainly some of them that we imagined. But one of the one of the things that Joe Walton, to get back to her, linked back to, was one of her own earlier pieces on the dystopian backgrounds of much SF from the 50s that was aimed at young adults, particularly Heinlein's Juveniles, which were very popular and certainly had a huge influence on me when I read them. And most of these stories are about going into space or being in space in one way or another. And one of the motivations for going into space, as it were, is that Earth pretty much sucks. <laughs> it Gravity gets you down and Earth sucks. Mm. And you, you go into space because Earth is overpopulated and overregulated and it's just you can't you can't move without bumping into some other person and some bureaucrat lording it over you and so on. And this default background of a somewhat decadent, declining, dystopian future, bureaucratic future Earth is one that was surprisingly prevalent, I think, in SF for young people in the 70s. And it, it partly shaped my own impression of the likely f future on Earth. And in fact, the real future on Earth has turned out, you know, to be quite different from that too, and in some ways in a lot of ways, more hopeful than that. <clears throat> Have I reached a natural conclusion to that question? Well, I wasn't sure whether you were uh, finished or not or clearing your throat. Um, <laughs> it is interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how how many stories or future narratives uh, written in the 50s, uh, you know, assume that nuclear war would have happened by now, right? There's been some sort of atomic conflict, or are against the, the dystopian backdrop of, of, a, of a nuclear apocalypse, as opposed to now we're all worried about environmental apocalypse. Uh, and so I can see that. But there's something about uh, the Heinlein juveniles and the kind of setting that you, are, that, that you mentioned, which really strikes me as, as a kind of, and maybe this is a, a thing to raise with you because you would have a different perspective, as a, a very kind of American frontier myth scenario, right? You know, if you think about the sort of myth of the American frontier uh, and the founding of America, right? It's about, and, and this is mythological and legendary. There's no, there's very little basis in reality for what I'm about to say, but decadent, uh, overdrawn, class-riven, unfree Europe and people escape into the wilderness where things are exciting and dynamic and where great experiments uh, in liberty uh, or in ways of life can take place. So it seems to me that while you're right that there's a kind of dystopian attitude. That dystopian attitude is built into a particular narrative of colonization and expansion and of the frontier, which uh, you know m might not be as fundamentally dystopian or as fundamentally kind of frightening or pessimistic as we have now, where the assumption is that you know we're heading toward some sort of ecocide where. Um, uh, carrying capacity crashes, and we have small groups of people running around, maybe kids killing each other in you know uh, in front of live TV audiences, or where there's a, a real sense of, of of limit in a lot of the in a lot of the science fiction uh, that's written now. And then on the other hand, you have this sort of grand space opera that that 
sometimes really engages with with that thematic, but other times really is much more purely escapist, right? And you have sort of this weird situation where some of the some of the most successful science fiction novels now either are very starkly dystopian in their viewpoint, even if they offer out some hope of salvation, or really are kind of a return to traditional grand space opera, um, people running around humanity in an interstellar or at least an intrastellar context, and we're not going to worry too much about about those impulses. I, maybe that's not a fair reading of what's going on. Um, I don't think it's entirely unfair, and I think you've, you've put your finger on a point about the, the dystopian um, Earths of Heinlein's futures that I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. Of course, I, I was very much aware of Heinlein's general trope of, if you like, Earth as Europe, of uh, Earth as like the Europe that we, that the Americans escaped from and that the space colonists in the future escaped from. And he uses that very effectively in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where you basically get a rerun of the American Revolution happening in a lunar penal colony. And I, in my first novel, The Star Fraction, I had, I alluded to that trope quite a bit and exploited it a bit. I think that the other thing you put your finger on quite correctly is that there is, there are two kinds of science fiction, very broadly speaking, at the moment, at least as far as I'm aware, you're right, that there are two, if not, they're certainly not two utterly separate and polarized, let alone exclusive uh, types of SF, but that you can see two clusters. I'm waving my hands here, about here at the moment. You can see statistically, if you like, two clusterings of science fiction, uh, which are, as, as, you, as you say, you, you get the earthbound and dystopian, and you get the um, space opera and cheerful. Now, there are some very interesting attempts to do something realistic with that, and I'm speaking here from a position of weakness because I haven't yet read the books myself, but two authors I very much admire, uh, Alistair Reynolds in Blue Remembered Earth and its sequels, deals with um, an exciting industrial future in the solar system uh, and, in a way, a green future in the solar system in a world that has come out of the climate crisis and all the other crises of the 21st century. And likewise, Kim Stanley Robinson in 2312 looks ahead to a future inhabited solar system and an Earth that is gradually recovering from the disasters. And even the most uh, vehement of the school that is called mundane SF, provocatively called mundane SF, I think they would agree that if you set your story far enough in the future and acknowledge the fact that you know the near future on Earth is likely to be at least one of severe problems that have to be solved, then it's it's fair enough to even think in in terms of rather golden age dreams of people spreading out into the solar system. Um, I'm tempted 
myself to try writing something like that or, or something further away. I've done several near-future novels recently, and they've all... I wouldn't say they were exactly dystopian, although my, my last one, Intrusion, which came out this year, was very consciously written as a dystopia. Uh, I don't, I, and I've, I think I've taken it about as far as I, far as I can. You know, you, you can spend only so much time making your dreadful warnings about um, religious fanaticism or the surveillance state or the war on terror or uh, whatever. Um, and in, in the case of intrusion, the, the intrusive state. Before you start thinking, you know, it would be really nice to stretch out again <laughs> and go into space or do something do something in a more distant future. It's good that you mentioned Intrusion, which is a, a novel that's been getting a lot of positive buzz, particularly among uh, actually the academics who read science fiction I hang out with, um, but doesn't seem to be easily available here. Are there any plans to uh, make it easily available in the United States? None so far. I, I think Pyre has an option on it. I, I think they get first dibs on it, but I do know that it. And there's there's no no further plans than that. I, I certainly hope it finds a U.S. publisher. It's one one possible obstacle. I think is. One limiting factor is that it is set in Britain, and it's a very Britain-focused novel. Now, sometimes that's that can be, you know, what's the word? You can you can step beyond that and still appeal to a U.S. audience. And I think, in many ways, a lot of the themes of intrusion could appeal to a U.S. audience uh, or readership, but. Um, it's, I'm still to persuade an editor or a publisher of that. You know, you mentioned at the, the beginning when I asked you about uh, why the night sessions took so long to appear here, uh, you mentioned uh, that, you know, some of the, the earlier, you know, you'd had a sort of string of, of a few books that hadn't sold as well as the publisher would have wanted in the United States, and that had thus meant you had to, to go elsewhere. You know, and this is a theme that, I've been trying to read a lot more of the kind of science fiction and, and, and writers' blogs and, and online resources recently, in, largely in preparation uh, for for this gig. And it strikes me how unforgiving uh, the publishing business is. I mean, you're somebody who has had a tremendous influence in the genre, both in terms of your own writing and in terms of really shepherding a number of extremely well-known authors, you know, helping them to... To, to get their stuff written and, and find uh, an audience and that sort of thing. Uh, and you would think that given the lower barriers to entry of publishing, the, the, the rise of e-books, et cetera, that the demands for certain profit margins might be less. But it, it sounds like it really is, is quite a difficult thing to, to do. Uh, well... Certainly the publishing business, the business model of, of publishing is very unforgiving indeed because if, you're, if your last book sold less than your second last, 
and it's in turn sold less than your third last, then you're in a death spiral, mate, and you they just they'll pull the plug. And I don't in the slightest, you know, blame them for that. And I do have to say that my my publisher, my first publisher in the United States, uh, Tor, have remained very very much behind me. They've kept my books in print. They've brought out uh, a nice omnibus edition of my first four novels, in a two-volume edition called Divisions and Fractions, or rather Fractions and Divisions. And, you know, I'm pretty sure they would welcome me back if I were to write. In fact, I've been told they'd be very happy to give, take another punt on me if I wrote something that they'd genuinely felt would appeal to a wide readership in the United States. I, I don't have any, I've got absolutely no complaints about that or any sense of self-pity about it, particularly because I know what a, a tough thing it is to be uh, even a published writer, let alone uh, somebody who can actually make a living, albeit somewhat precarious, as a, as a professional writer. I am genuinely feel I'm one of the one of the lucky ones, and it is true that ebooks have reduced the barriers to entry, and in fact, people are now doing electronic self-publication. Some of it, well, some of it's going to be good, some of it is good, uh, you, but the trouble is you, you just know that 99.9 .9 recurring is going to be dross. So we still need publishers of some kind, or at least people who are willing to to make selections from that potentially enormous output. And the the, the problem of getting getting uh, backing and publicity of one kind or another and serious attention still remains. <laughs> It'll remain even if if heaven help us if if what now goes to publisher slush piles, suddenly starts appearing on Amazon at 99 cents a go. Um, I want to make sure that we, we don't end on a kind of uh, pessimistic note about the, the state of the publishing industry. Um, so um, uh, I thought that maybe it would be uh, nice to, to try to return back to the night sessions for a few minutes, which is a really, I mean, it's really a wonderful book. I, I, I cannot sort of say how much I enjoyed it. Uh, and one of the things, as I mentioned before, that I found so interesting about it is that there are a lot of spare characterizations, uh, but I always had the sense that the characters off of whom appear for short periods of time, sometimes we get point of view from a limited number of characters who are not really central characters. So we have an, a, a fairly large number of characters in play. They're not sort of extremely well-developed within the narrative. That is to say, we don't get elaborate backstories for all but a few of them. But they all felt like there was a lot more going on beneath the surface, that these were very real uh, characters. Uh, and it, that seems to be a, a kind of recurrent strength uh, in your novels. Is there anything about the characters in, in the night sessions in particular uh, beyond the religious dimension that we talked about that that really motivated you or, or you were thinking about when you wrote some of the some of them well thank thank you for saying that i it's when you were while you were saying it i was actually thinking about these characters and the characters in the night sessions in particular i think are ones that oddly enough <laughs> tend tend to live in my mind at least 
I feel as if I would be able to, you know, write more about them or talk more about individual characters and know more about them than is actually in in the book. And I don't think that's all, that's not necessarily always the case about with all of all of the characters in, in my novels, particularly you know the minor minor characters. Uh, some of whom, as all minor characters are, are just you know spear carriers or red shirts or whatever. Um, sadly enough, but I actually, when I, while I was writing it, I, I did quite strongly identify, I suppose, with all of them. I identified with the with John John Richard Campbell, the young creationist, the sort of painfully sincere, geeky guy. Uh, partly because, you know, in a way I was that guy, or I, or I could have been, in a sense. And I, the way I imagined my, the main character, the cop, Adam Ferguson, was quite simply, I took, I knew I was writing a, a crime novel, a police procedural set in Edinburgh, and my good friend Ian Rankin has been a lot more successful than I have in writing crime novels set in Edinburgh. You may have heard of him. And I thought, I better take, make my policeman somebody who's the complete opposite of D.I. Rebus. So I made him a guy who is happily married, who drinks half a pint of beer every evening after work, and who does things by the book and has a good relationship with his superiors and with his, um, you know, his subordinates. And, gosh, you know, once you've framed a character in that way, you, you start sort of mentally filling in the rest of it. So you imagine his wife and his daughter, and et cetera, et cetera. And he kind of came to life a bit. I would actually, I've actually considered at some points writing a, a sequel or writing even more than than a sequel set in the same world you know dealing with you know entirely different questions on the than the um religion and terrorism one that preoccupies the night sessions but by and large you know i i i i felt while i was writing it that i was strongly identifying with most of the characters it's funny that you, you say you set out to write uh, Police Procedural in Edinburgh. Um, my wife and I were in Edinburgh a few months ago, and it struck me how vividly uh, you portray the city. I mean, I had one of those moments of like, wait, we were right there, you know, all that kind of geeky stuff. But the city did feel very real, and it obviously, you know, you pay a lot of attention to locations within the city. And, and that was, it sounds like, a, a real motivation for part of, of doing this book. Is that correct? Yeah, well, not so much a motivation exactly as a, as something that I wanted to be present in the book. Some people have actually said that partly because I'm so familiar with Edinburgh, I don't, I don't describe places. I take it for granted that you know roughly where they are and so on, which is a, another way of looking at that. But I, I visited every location in in the book, I think, and. <laughs> You know, I, well, obviously, I lived very near Edinburgh, and I was very familiar with many of them. And the locations in New Zealand are ones that I visited, too. So I, I know them, at least in a touristy sense. The 
so every location is is real, including the the strange inscriptions on the Covenanter monument in Greyfriars Churchyard. One of the things that also struck me about the mystery aspect of it is that I don't read enough mystery. I, this is the kind of thing where I, I probably should have asked somebody who does to have a real sense of what's conventional or unconventional. I, I did note, as you mentioned, that the, you have a well-adjusted main character, which is refreshing because it immediately takes out a lot of the gimmicks that a lot of people use to halt or slow the investigation, right? So we don't have any of that. The conflict with the superiors prevents the war, which prevents things from moving quickly enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but that being said, the the mystery the mystery elements did strike me as unconventional. There's a lot that, because there are shifting points of view, there are a lot of things that we as the reader know. Um, we have a pretty good idea fairly early on who the terrorists are going to be, um, who the central terrorists are likely to be. Um, that sort of thing. But a lot of the mystery has to do with specific elements of character and specific in, in questions about the extent of penetration of the conspiracy and things like that. Was that a, a, a very deliberate move on your part? Well, actually, it's, it's a funny story because the, the gritty underside of our or the, 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 the whatever the, the gritty underside of writing that novel is that it was a was a complete pain to write. I, I conceived of the, what I thought was the brilliant idea of writing down all my ideas and notes on post-it notes, other kinds of sticky back notes available, and sticking them to a large A5 sheet of paper stuck on my wall. And I'm still finding uh, pieces of paper on the floor of my workroom with um, <laughs> plot points that never made it in. <laughs> at one point, I, I, I swear at one point, I I think that there is a, probably a recognisable point in the book which somebody, you, you, if you read, you will come to, where Ferguson, the, the detective, is sitting down with a notepad trying to work out what on earth is going on. And... Basically, his mental processes are pretty much what mine were at that stage, because I had made it so uh, there had been there were so many double bluffs and so on involved, and so many uh, potential red herrings that I had to really sit down and work out how to tie it all together myself. And yet, even toward the end, there are reveals, you know, sort of these ambiguous reveals, right? And I think we're far enough along that we can, we have talked to Marshall about some way to, to get spoil warnings in, but, you know, that characters who we think may or may not, who we think were there was no way in League may in fact have been in League in the first place or may not have been, uh, and you make that you know, deliberately ambiguous. There's the whole question about even what beliefs are really motivating some of the, the core actors. We're never really certain uh, at the end of the of the book. Um, and so was that an issue of sort of post-it notes getting lost or an issue of, of the way that you wanted to read things, or am I just not, am I just missing something? No, I, I, I think you can honestly say you're not missing anything, and I don't think that post I don't think I can blame this on post-it notes getting lost. I, I really did think that I had worked out what was what was actually happening, and to tie together the various uh, plot lines. And some some of the sort of last 
you know, last few chapters reveals were actually there. I think the most surprising one, perhaps, in terms of the motivations of the bad guys, were there from quite early in the conception of the book. And I, in that the the religious beliefs of the uh, the terrorists are not quite what you think they are i think something something very like that was in my mind from the beginning um and if it comes as a, as a surprise all all the better but it, it wasn't a last minute stunt as far as i can remember so you also mentioned the recursive element of of the novel the you know that ferguson has his his own notebook which is very much like your notes as you try to decipher what's going on. Uh, and, and I think this might be a kind of odd question to, to, to as, as kind of our penultimate question, but I'm curious about this, the issue of sort of meta-ness and recursivity. Uh, I might just be imagining things, but I, I went back and I was looking at the restoration game, right, which of course involves uh, a set of recursive propositions about simulations and in, 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 in video gaming. Uh, and uh, you have in uh, the, the night sessions these wonderfully kind of drawn geeky neo-Gnostics, you know, who believe who have bought into the idea that that uh, who have updated Gnosticism by uh, seeing uh, the demiurges having created a great simulation that we live in, uh, to which presumably the various uh, 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 things that don't quite work about. Uh, Physics, etc., dark matter, and all that are are indications that there's something wrong with the simulation. Uh, you have, uh, and then you sort of, I, I sort of was thinking more broadly, and you know, Ian ba- uh, M. Banks, who's a, a friend of yours, I understand it. His, the algebraist, of course, has has the the simulation as the kind of ur religion, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> Then, of course, even within the night sessions, you're dealing with, you know, towards the end, the notion of the immortality of the soul as the propagation of, of artificial intelligence, the cop, copy and replication of the simulation of mind, which is self-aware. Is there, is there something bigger going on here, some sort of in-joke or some sort of particular philosophical questions that are starting to be re-looked at within science fiction stuff that we sort of once saw as the province of stoned-out people in the 60s, but that are now coming back in a more serious way? Well, variants of the simulation argument Mm. have come up here and there, certainly in my own SF and in, in other SF, as you rightly point out, in, in Ian Banks, it also came up, I think, in his novel Matter, mm-hmm. which, <clears throat> by from its title alone, you can see that part of the book is a is a, an argument against the simulation. I think one of the characters in it, <laughs> one of the characters in Banks's big novel Matter, says something like that we can't the only the only truly comforting set of beliefs is that what everything that happens is a product of mindless matter because if it was a product of mind if the universe was a product of mind what an appalling mind it would be and what a cruel or callous mind it would have to be and it's a kind of anti-theodicy the 
the idea of the simulation argument has haunted me ever since I came across it in the mid-90s, I think it was, in an essay by Hans Moravec, the um, artificial intelligence theorist and roboticist. Hans Moravec wrote an essay called Pigs in Cyberspace, funnily enough, in which he, he advanced a version of the simulation argument. And I think the simulation argument is one of these arguments that is... Uh, it's preposterous on the face of it, and it's hard to refute. It's kind of like the the argument about how we are very likely to be among the last few generations alive. Was there sort of anything to, to add to that? Hey, no, not really, but just to wrap up with one, 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 one final point about that question... Is there an in-joke going on? I don't think so. It's one of these things that I, I find strike me when someone points it out from outside. Like somebody will say, you know, there's an awful lot of flying saucers in your novel. Or, there's an awful lot of simulation arguments in your novels. There's even a version of something very like a simulation argument in uh, Intrusion, but it's taken the other way around. It's called the Mathematical Universe Argument. Uh, which I won't go into here, but which is even more mind-boggling on the simulation argument. All right. Well, thank you so much for being so generous of your time. I want to uh, remind our listeners that they, sh if you have not already, you should pick up a copy of the Night Sessions, which is uh, recently released in the United States and is a really fantastic book. And I think as uh, hopefully uh, this interview made clear, I think uh, Ken himself made very clear, he's really an author whose books are full of interesting uh, and thought-provoking ideas. Uh, and if and if that's not your cup of tea, there's still a, a great deal of uh, fun and excitement uh, and discovery within them. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you all for listening. This episode of the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy podcast was recorded on 31 July 2012 and featured Ken McLeod.